Solid Food, a podcast that is neat in your soul. This podcast is designed to improve the biblical literacy of all those who desire to know and please God better by teaching us how to study the Bible in a way that will allow us to arrive at an accurate interpretation and better application. For our last time together, I found a quote from Dr. Seuss that explains what we are doing here perfectly. Dr. Seuss says, it is better to know how to learn than to know. I'm Dr. Lee Lewis, and it is a privilege and a blessing to be your host. Today, we want to take a look at this topic of faith and works. And the scripture that we will examine today is found in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 14 through 20. The Bible here reads, and this is the New American Standard Version, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, folks, as we endeavor to exegete or interpret the text, we examine a variety of its aspects and utilize a number of tools to do so. For instance, there are many different versions of the Bible translated in the English language. Pursuing several can provide added insight regarding what the original author is saying. It is important, therefore, that you utilize a version you can understand, but that it be accurate regarding its translation from source material. For our purposes today, as an alternative to the New American Standard that was read a moment ago, let's take a look at how the New Living Translation phrases it, just for comparison. The New Living Translation says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith. Others have good deeds. But I say How can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith and you believe that there is one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Family, when studying scripture, it's often beneficial to understand the who, what, why, when, and to whom associated with the writing. This is also known as context. 
Anyone can find a verse in the Bible to say whatever they want, but what is the context in which it was originally found? And is it applicable to the claim that is being made about it? Now, these are questions that the Bible student must consider. So, who is the author of the James epistle? Who is James? Well, there are four different James that are found in the New Testament, four different people named James. There's James, the son of Zebedee, who's the brother of John. Uh, there's James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the apostles. There's James, the father of Judas, one of the two who were apostles, not Judas Iscariot. And then there's James, the Lord's brother, who didn't believe in him during his ministry, but became prominent in the Jerusalem church, according to Acts chapter 12, verse 17, 15, 13, and Galatians 2, 9. Now, the Lord's brother is the most likely of the four to be identified as the writer of this general epistle. One of seven written to the church at large, rather than a particular congregation or individual. Now, he was popular among Jewish Christians and nicknamed James the Just or Righteous because of his faithfulness to the law and to prayer. Tidbits such as these can give us insight into his meaning when we consider his words. Of note in his writing are the fact that the Old Testament and Jewish teachings are frequently referenced. The assembly is referred to by him as the synagogue. And the central Jewish tenet that God is one is mentioned in chapter 2, verse 19. Now, it can be further noticed that the teaching of Jesus permeates the writing, albeit without direct citation. This is indicative of someone with James's background, physical relationship to Jesus, uh, and did not spill over into a spiritual relationship. He remained estranged from Jesus and his true family, that is, those who do the will of God, according to Mark chapter 3, verse 35, until after the resurrection. Finally, James is a passionate defender of faith in action. At the center of his heated warnings, is his declaration of an impending judgment without mercy for all those who do not live according to mercy. And that can be found in James chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. To who was this written? James chapter 1, verse 1 reveals that James is writing to the Jewish diaspora, that is to say the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. Now, the local congregation was led by teachers, according to chapter 3, verse 1, and by a plurality of elders, according to chapter 5, verse 14. The audience can be located somewhere within the socioeconomic middle. The story of the rich and poor visitors to the local congregations in chapter 2 suggests that at least the majority of James's audience identified with neither. They had suffered personal and legal persecution by the rich, who may have been professing believers. Now, this comes to us from Douglas Moo in his commentary on James. We definitely want to utilize all the tools. We've already used another version of the Bible to try to help us understand what's being said here. But we also use commentaries. We also use Bible dictionaries. Uh, we also use concordances. All these things we utilize when we're studying the Bible and we're exegeting the text. So why was this written? Some have asserted that James is a rather disconnected collection of sayings, while others have contended that it is a well-organized and coherent letter centering on a theme or set of themes. 
Now, when you read James, it doesn't come across that he has a particular axe to grind or overall subject matter to address. It comes across as things that are on his mind that he feels it important for Christians to know. In the interest of time and today's focus, I'll defer outlining the entire letter and now guide us to the passage at hand. We've read the text already, so I won't take you back through that. But again, chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, where it starts, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Family James is now making the impassioned point that the way believers live must correspond to the claims that they make for their faith. Demonstrating the authenticity of your faith is the theme of this section. And and, and it's important, I think, folks, that when we study the Bible, every now and then, I think it's important to identify and define certain words. For instance, in this passage, in this one verse, it talks about faith, and it talks about works. If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? What is faith? And maybe we have an instinctive definition in our minds of what that is, but I can tell you that faith in the original language, Greek, is a word called pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, and it connotes persuasion, conviction, and commitment. And always implies confidence, which we understand in relationships as fidelity, trust, assurance, an oath even, uh, proof, or guarantee. Right? These things are associated with faith according to the theological lexicon of the New Testament. Of course, we can always fall back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, where it says faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Um, that's important. And I think most of us can understand that. But then what are works? Works comes from a Greek word called ergon. The word uh, that we get our term ergonomics. And it means work, performance, the result or object of employment, making or working. So we're talking about labor, business, employment, something that has to be done generally. Um, it has to do with the work of which Jesus was sent to fulfill on earth. We can read about that in Mark chapter 13, verse 34, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, and other passages. So there are those who might say, what about what Paul had to say about works and salvation? Because it seems that James is saying that faith without works is dead, is useless, But if you are familiar with the writings of Paul, he had a different view. But we have to ask ourselves, was it? If you ask, what about what Paul had to say about works and salvation, justification? That's a great question. And I would share with you that what Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 20 and 28 is about works of the law as a means of justification outside of Christ. Now, this is completely different than what James is saying about the demonstration of faith in Christ through works of mercy. Case in point, 
He goes on to say in verse 15 and 16, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? So this is now the second rhetorical question with only one real answer. And it's designed to make a point and to get his audience to think. Such a scenario would make no sense to anyone, particularly if we were put in the place of the destitute. Think about it. Let's say that's you laying on the ground. Let's say that's you um, with no good clothes. Maybe your clothes are torn, disrepair, dirty, what have you. and You don't have access to other clothing. Let's say that you haven't had a meal in a couple of days. And let's say that someone from the church sees you and says, wow, I I really hope that it gets better for you, Lee. Um, I'm praying for you. And then they walk off. How would would you be feeling at that point? What, What would you think about that individual? What would you think about that person and the faith that they claim to have? That's the question. You know, John wrote, In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. (laughs) That's powerful. Let's not talk about it. Let's be about it. Notice also. That this refers to a brother or sister. This refers to a fellow member of the body of Christ. This is family. Now, would you allow a member of your family to be in this condition when you have been blessed to do more than just pray? You see, the role here is not to pray for an answer, but to be an answer to a prayer. Let me say that again. The role here is not to pray for an answer but to be an answer to the prayer. We can still pray, but how much more effective are we as people of faith when we put action with our faith? You know, Kurt Richardson in the New American Commentary wrote, a word of blessing without an act of blessing is like the promise of salvation without the saving act of God in Christ. Wow. I mean, think about that. Imagine we as Christ followers, as children of God, being promised salvation and then not receiving it. I mean, how devastating would that be? That really brings it home. So in verse 17, the Bible says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now, this is the necessary conclusion of the above consideration. Think about it like this, because I, you know, as I was putting this together, I thought about this. I have, um, I have this cup full of pens (laughs) on my desk and uh, my wife, Michelle, comes in every now and then and she'll grab a pen to write and then it won't write. And she says, why do you have this here if it doesn't work? And and it makes all the sense in the world. I mean, it's just one of those things where I think we all probably do that. We all have these pens and we pick them up and we write with them. And and then when it doesn't write, you know what we do? We put them back. We don't throw them away. We just put them back. So that creates an expectation that the pen works. 
and then it doesn't, right? Same thing with batteries, right? You, you, maybe you need a couple of batteries right? and you go looking around through all your drawers and you find this Duracell or whatever. Uh, and, 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 okay, great. This is what I need. And then it's, 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 it's run down. It's expired. It doesn't work. So why is it still here? Why is it not in the garbage, right? You're creating an expectation that there's something that's available that isn't. So a blessing, desire, is worthless without a blessing act. Okay? A blessing desire is worthless without a blessing act. And then it's not only no blessing at all, it can likely do harm. I mean, think about it. If you see somebody who's in need and you're not willing to do anything for them except I'll pray for you, can that further alienate the non-believer to say, well, I thought you Christians were A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And if it is a believer that you're dealing with, because again, this is directed toward brothers and sisters in Christ. Can it be a stumbling block to a believer? I can't tell you how many times I've been in a church and I've talked to people who used to go to church, who used to be members of a particular congregation, but their needs weren't met. The people who were there did a lot of talking, but not a lot of doing. And so they left. The truth is, if we're not willing to put action to our faith, the question must seriously be asked if we have faith at all. Now, that question's for you to ask yourself, not for me to ask you. I, I have to ask myself <laughs> in my relationship with God and in my faith claims, can I back the things up that I believe with the things that I do? If I can't, I need to reexamine either whether I actually have faith or whether I need to do a better job of demonstrating that faith by the things that I'm willing to do. And so now verse 18, James writes, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Family, verse 18 is a challenge Many claim to be Christians and to love God, but the traits of God cannot be seen in them. Now, let me be clear. This is not about judging others by what they do or do not do. This is about self-examination. Simply going to worship or wearing the trappings of Christianity is not what is referred or referenced here. What is being done by the believer as a believer because of that belief is the question. If there's no answer, the self-asked question can lead to just one conclusion. If there is an answer, therein is faith, demonstrated faith. So James then goes on to compare this kind of belief against the worst example of it. Watch this. I just love this. In verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one and you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now, Jewish doctrine includes something referred to as the Shema. And it's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And it simply says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now, this was recited by Jews twice a day. Christians also asserted the existence of one God in the face of polytheism, then and even today. This is great because it's true and it's essential 
But demons have that same belief. They also believe in God. They also know that there is just one God. And I want us to think about the implications. Now, when I read this, it feels like the demons know it even better than we do because of their shuddering. They are so in awe of God and so in fear of God because of their decisions. They, they, they shudder. They're terrified. That's how convinced and convicted they are that God is. But they're demons, folks. They are demons. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want my faith to be on the level of demon faith. Is it all right? <laughs> no, 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 no. And so Douglas Moo, once again, our commentator, says as important as correct doctrine is, no one in the early church considered it sufficient for salvation. Again, as important as correct doctrine is, no one in the early church considered it sufficient for salvation. Genuine faith must go beyond the intellect to the will. It must affect our attitudes and actions as well as our beliefs. What's Douglas Moo saying? He's saying it's not enough to just know what's right. It's important to do what's right and to have what we believe match and be reflected by what we do. So this kind of faith amounts to nothing more the knowledge about God. A medical doctor may have knowledge about how to save a life, but what good is it if he or she is unwilling to apply that knowledge to a life that is threatened? Can you imagine a doctor who can absolutely save a life just standing there doing nothing? Right? That's why they have that Hippocratic oath you know, to do no harm and to not sit idly by while someone is in need and do nothing. Now, verse 20. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So the question is asked, essentially, do you get it? Do you understand? The word foolish here is not directed at a person or an individual, but a notion. And it means, foolish, the word foolish means empty. And it demonstrates a deficiency in understanding as well as perhaps moral perversity. And from here, then, he goes on to cite specific examples of faith demonstrated by works in the personages of Abraham and Rahab based on things that they actually did. Now, you'd have to delve into verse 21, 22 and those following, which we're not going to do today. But I trust that you will be curious enough and interested enough to take a look at those at your leisure. So from here, however, we'll conclude our time together with the all important application of our interpretation. And again, as we study, as we learn how to learn, as we apply ourselves to determining how we can not just read the Bible, but learn how to study the Bible for proper interpretation and application. Application is always the end point. So based on what James has shared with us today and what we have examined, I've arrived at a few conclusions, and perhaps you've arrived at your own. First, it's great to have faith, but what are you doing with it and because of it? Is your faith a claim or an action? Now, this falls under the category of self-examination, 
we really do need to think about who we are in Christ and how that is demonstrated. Again, not to be scrutinized by others. This is all self-examination. That's where it starts. Second, Christianity is certainly about what we believe and who we believe in. But the purpose of it is what we do as a result and demonstration of what we believe. We buy airline tickets because we believe the plane will get us to our destination safely. We go on cruises because we have faith that the boat will stay afloat. We sit in a chair because we're confident it will hold our weight. Now compare this to people who will not fly, who will not sail, or who won't sit in a particular chair. And then ask yourself why. And the answer is obvious. There's fear. And why is there fear? Because they don't believe that that plane is going to get them to their destination safely or that cruise ship will stay afloat or that chair will hold their weight. We then have to ask ourselves, what gets done because of the faith that we have in God? Again, it's not just about going to church on Sundays. It's not just about participating in Bible studies. But as it relates to the type of mercy that James is talking about, how are we interacting with others who have needs? Are we actively involved and engaged in helping people? Are we actively engaged and involved in being the presence of Christ in the lives of other people? And finally, as Christians, we must understand that we are the answer to people's prayers. We are the only physical manifestation of the Lord to those who are in need. When we do more than offer to pray for people, but actually feed them, actually meet their needs, actually put a few dollars in their pocket, actually help those who may have particular needs of presence or visitation or labor, we're then demonstrating the faith that we claim to have. It does no good to go into your chosen place of worship Sunday after Sunday and then go home and do nothing because of the faith that you say that you have. This is what James is telling us. Faith without works is a dead faith. And I don't know about you, family, but I don't ever want to be accused of having a dead faith. And again, I'm not concerned about being accused by those who are external, but I don't want to come to the realization that I have a dead faith. And if I do happen to come to that realization, make that faith alive by doing things to demonstrate that I have it. Amen? Amen. So thank you for joining the Solid Food Podcast. Until next time, I wish you great spiritual food and great study. And be sure to bring a friend.